0: Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall, Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church, and the world. I'm your host Philip Fleming, warden of Cranmer Hall. If you enjoy talking theology, do subscribe at your favorite podcast provider, follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Talking Theo and share on social media. Thank you for listening. Now on to today's episode. How can music help us access theological realities? To which words bear witness? How can the patterns of Western music provide us with a disarming but compelling way into the heart of the gospel? How can the uncontainability of music point us to a transcendent God of love and grace? And how can music expand our perception of what it is to be human and open up conversations of faith? Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'll be talking to Professor Jeremy Begby. Jeremy is a professor in theology at Duke Divinity School in North Carolina, and as well as being ordained in the Church of England, is also a professionally trained musician. He writes extensively on the relationship between theology and the arts with a particular focus on music. And our title today is, How can music help us imagine and reimagine? our understanding of ourselves and God. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Jeremy Begby, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you very much indeed. Delightful to be here. Jeremy, you're a professor at Duke Divinity School. Tell us about your journey to that role,
1: and and tell us about what your role currently involves. Well, my current role is as a professor of theology at Duke Divinity School, which is in Durham, North Carolina. And before that, I was many years at Ridley Hall, very similar to Cranmer, uh, where I taught doctrine, um, both in, the, in Ridley itself, but also in the university. And as far as research is concerned, I was particularly interested in the relationship between theology and the arts, or the gospel and the arts, particularly music, because music was my original training. And in 2008, Duke Divinity School phoned up and, uh, and asked me whether I'd be willing to take a chair in theology but it's also they wanted me to specialise in setting up something in the theology and the arts. So that's what I've been doing for the last, well, 12 years now. You've written extensively,
0: I know, on theology, the theological tradition, and it's long and uh, complex relationship with music. And that's what we're gonna be talking about today. Can you give us, perhaps to start with, a bit of an overview of what are the key questions, themes, ideas, and even controversies that kind of pop up when music meets theology and theology meets music?
1: Great question. I think the conversation between music and theology really is only taking off big time uh, now, or at least it has been over the last 15, 20 years. It's been very much the neglected partner in the theology and arts um, dialogue, but now it's coming very much into its own. And I'm delighted about that, not just in the UK, but also in the US and Australia and other places as well. And that's as it should be, because music has always been part of the Christian church, always will be. So at some stage, we're going to have to think theologically about it. As far as the main, I think the, probably the issue I come up against more than any other is the relationship between music and language. That uh, music cannot refer to things specifically in the way that language can. Uh, I can't say this is a table in music. It doesn't seem to point to things in the world, and it can't seem to tell the truth in the way that a lot of language can. And this has made it uh, a lot of people very suspicious of music for that reason. So I think that the key questions: How are we to understand the relationship between music and language, and can music be truth-bearing as well as language? I think they both can. Uh, what I often find also is that things sort of split into extremes here. On the one hand, you've got what I call word-obsessed Protestants who, uh, if you can't say it, it can't be true. If you can't say it, you can't believe it. Everything has to be expressible in language. And if it's not, it can't be true. It can't be meaningful. And, of course, that puts an art form like music in a very kind of defensive position because uh, because you can't wrap it up in language, and it's not a form of language, and it's different from language, and and it always will be. But that's been the big, that's been a, a strong tradition, particularly in the Protestant churches, also to a certain extent in the Catholics, and therefore uh, language is brought in to, to keep music at bay. Music's all right in its place, but it needs language to keep it safe. The other extreme, though, is where where language is the enemy, and we jump into music in order to escape language. That is, that there are many who would feel that an art form like music gives us a chance to get away. From all that word obsessed Protestantism, that music takes over where language stops. So we speak, and if you've got to speak, all right. But actually, if you really want to get in touch with the transcendent or the holy or the spiritual or whatever it is, then music will do that job for you. I call that a kind of anti verbal aestheticism. Uh, That's where you believe music's going to do a huge amount of theological things for you, but it will do it insofar as you can escape the awful strictures and ramping influences of words needless to say from the way I'm talking I don't actually believe either of those are fair but that's the kind of oscillation that we get a lot of in the discussion at the moment so the challenge is as Christians how can we take language seriously which we must because of the way that God has revealed himself after all um, ultimately in a human person who speaks the incarnation is the incarnation of the son of God as a speaker not just a visible body, but a speaker. And then, of course, out of that comes Scripture, the word, the authoritative text um, for the Christian church. How can we take that seriously while also allowing music to do its own kind of work in its own kind of way? And that seems to me that's the big challenge. How can music help us be truthful and faithful to the gospel, but without language sometimes? And you've articulated, therefore, these two extremes that
0: this kind of word-obsessed Protestants and anti-verbal aestheticism, on the other hand. And you've articulated the challenge of of, of seeing that sort of middle ground or that sort of conversation. I think sometimes what you've called the resonances between those two traditions. Can you tell us a little bit more about what those resonances are between theology and music in a way that doesn't set them up either as music has to be subservient to words or music is somehow superior to
1: words. Superior to words. That's a nice way of, that's a very nice way of putting it. What we need is a way of understanding that music can help us access the realities that the words are speaking about and in which the words are caught up. That's the challenge. And it seems, and you've got to do it with visual art and dance and drama and all the arts as well. That's the great thing. And I believe they can do that. The music can do that. And it's when you start exploring that, you see all sorts of resonances between, say, the world of music and the world of the gospel. The The first one that really hit me between the eyes was the way in which Western music operates in patterns of tension and resolution. Uh, the, it largely operates by setting up tensions which we feel must be resolved. They could be tensions in harmony or in pitch or volume or timbre and all sorts of things. But... We set up a tension, and then we go on to resolve it. Uh, and this is the way music keeps us in its story. This is, it holds us by constantly making us a bit tense and then giving us a bit of a resolution. It happens in thousands of ways. Now that we think about that pattern, tension and resolution, of course, before the, for something to be a tension, it needs something before it, which is not attention, which I call equilibrium. And so the full pattern of Western music is really equilibrium, then tension and resolution. And that pattern, which I call home away and home again, that pattern is pervasive in 99% of the music you will have on your playlist, and 99% of the music that's dominated our culture. It begins somewhere, it takes you somewhere else, and you return back. But very often, and the, the home you return to, the return is often richer than the home you left. Now, of course, I mean, instantly, there are Theological resonances there, creation for redemption, Israel at, at home, taken to exile, returning, the life of Jesus, you know, from the Father into the world, and then exalted, ascended. And of course, the, the, so many parables, um, but supremely the parable of the prodigal son is a story of home, away, and home again. So, what I find fascinating is that in music, in worship, say, every hymn, uh, every song on your playlist or whatever, is actually playing out this pattern. Now, when I saw that, those correlations, I wanted not discover those myself. Other people have seen that. But then I began to look at a lot of theology in that light, in the light of that pattern. I began to see that music gave me a wonderful lens, or whatever the oral equivalent of a lens is, a lens for hearing uh, certain shapes in the gospel and shapes in biblical narratives much, much more clearly. That's That was the first kind of resonance that I saw. And I find that a useful pattern. I found it very incidentally, evangelistically as well, uh, or people who have perhaps uh, little or no exposure to the Christian faith. It's a, ver- it's a very uh, disarming way into the very basic shape of the gospel. And they'll never forget it because the next time they listen to a bit of music or hear a bit of music, they'll think of that pattern. So it can be very, very powerful. And then there are also other things you can develop along that. I mean, Part of the trouble, I think, with a lot of uh, worship music, and I'm talking not necessarily contemporary worship, but all sort right across the board, is that there's remarkably little tension uh, and resolutions come really rather too easily sometimes. And I think that says something about our culture and the kind of faith, Christian faith, that we can often manage, which is often a bit too manageable, slightly sentimental perhaps, where resolutions happen too easily and too quickly. Uh, so music t- tells you a lot about patience, about waiting in time for for a resolution, for, about being away from home for a long for a long period. And I think our culture has largely forgotten that music can tell us a great deal about what that means.
0: I'm struck by, you know, if one goes back to some of the symphonies of the nineteenth century, Tchaikovsky. I was listening to at the weekend. You know, you get this this sense of tension. Tchaikovsky, for I was listening to that sense of tension is just kind of ongoing and, and unresolved for so long, really. And and there's something that you that you said that strikes me that being willing to live with that tension and unresolved tension, and rather than sort of tripping over into, and it all got better.
1: That's right. Absolutely. I mean, it tells us a lot that yeah, you mentioned Tchaikovsky, but a huge amount of music at the end of the 19th century. There, not just in Russia, but in in Europe as well. Well, um, traded on making people wait a very long time. Richard Wagner is the kind of extreme on that. He makes you wait hours sometimes before you get any resolution, mm-hmm. but he holds you in the story. He knows how to do it. I think that is important. It's told me, it's taught me a lot liturgically about the importance in Holy Week, for instance, of journeying through the Passion to the resurrection stage by stage in God's time, so to speak, as we do in Holy week, in, in the order and the timing in God did that. Um, so that we don't jump through to Easter and don't constantly look at it from the point of view of, oh, I know how it's going to end. Uh, those who went through that didn't know how it was going to end. Just when you go through a bit of music, you're not yet at the ending. It take, you, There are certain things you cannot hurry. You have to go through. So there are all sorts of fascinating things to explore there. I think the other major, you talk about resonance, is... is well, just that. It's to do with the way in which we hear sounds as opposed to see objects. Um, again, it's it's not my idea, but it's one that I've, I have suppose I've developed quite a bit. And it's just a simple observation that, that you can't see two different objects as different in the same space at the same time. So you can't see red and yellow in the same space as red and yellow. It, one will hide the other or they'll turn into orange if you try to put them in the same space that objects in our visual field occupy bounded locations, locations with edges, such that they're either there or they're here, and they can't be in the same place at the same time. There's nothing wrong with that, but it is only one way of perceiving the world. And in Trinitarian theology, I think relying on that alone has done a fair amount of damage, because it's very hard to think threeness and oneness in the same space at the same time. You'll end up with a kind of uh, Unitarianism, you could say, whenever when all three are resolved into one splurge in the middle. Or, of course, you end up in some version of Tritheism, a kind of extreme, what's called social Trinitarianism. As far as the way we hear the world is concerned, though, that is very different, because if I play a note on a non-existent piano here, uh, what you hear in through your ears, the phenomena that you hear, uh, fills the whole of your heard space. You don't say of a note, it's there, but it's not over here. It fills everything. It has no edges to it. And if, of course, you play another note over that one, it fills the same space, but you hear it as distinct. So in the world of the sound, you can have two or three things in the same space at the same time. Now, of course, then the Trinitarian resonances just sort of, just pour out all that language in John's Gospel about the Son in the Father, the Father in the Son. Extremely hard to draw extremely hard to visualise, but actually relatively easy to hear. Just go and play two notes on the piano when you get home. You're hearing the interpenetration, perichoresis and all that, for, for theologians to thing. the interpenetration of two irreducibly different realities, but uh, and they live in and through each other, because there's also, of course, resonance between these tones. It's, say in a three-note major chord, there'll be resonance between the three. Now, I've I found that coming at at the Trinity from that perspective, there's a whole lot of conceptuality and language that suddenly bursts open, and, and this is the key point, makes Scripture a good deal more, um, dare I say it, understandable, uh, makes a great deal of doctrine, Trinitarian doctrine, suddenly live, as opposed to the stuff that we normally land on churches when we say, isn't the Trinity a terrible problem and i'm not very clever but i'll do my best to make some sort of sense of it and the glorious message of the gospel then is god is a problem to be solved well not if you think with your ears uh, th- th- then you're into a world that is enjoyable and resonant and instantly positive and and i do believe that's the, that needs to be explored
0: You mentioned earlier about transcendence, and I'd like to pick up on that. Um, Much of your work in theology and the arts and theology and music, uh, more specifically, is concerned with taking seriously, and I think I'm quoting you here, the gut intuition that there is a special link between art and a transcendent beyond. Can you just unpack briefly what you understand by the word transcendent? Because it's a word that's used by theologians a lot and other uh, philosophers. But what do you understand by that word transcendent? And what does this gut intuition look like for you?
1: Okay, I'll compress that as as far as I can. First of all, the danger is defining transcendence in advance and then foisting it on scripture or the theological tradition. Transcendence seems to me has... There two main currents to it. One is what I call otherness, and the second is uncontainability. To say God is transcendent, we're speaking about the transcendence of God here, to say God is transcendent is to say God is other than the world, that God is not, so to speak, of the same stuff as the world. technical language that is um, there is an ontological difference between God and the world that is a difference of being God is not the world the world is not God the world depends on God God doesn't depend on the world and so on that has absolutely nothing to do with God being distant or separate or indifferent towards the world and that's the great confusion no it just means God is God and the world is the world that's all it means the second strand, I think, is uncontainability. That is that the finite world cannot contain God and human beings cannot contain God. God is another way. I mean, Karl Barth, the uh, great Swiss theologian, would have called this God's freedom. God is not at our beck and call and cannot be encompassed by either us or anything finite. But having said that, those two qualities must always be understood in terms of love and grace. So that transcendence is not an abstract category. The transcendence, to say God is other than the world, uh, is to say that that is a reflection of God's love, because God loves what is other than God and wants it to flourish in its otherness. So otherness is a good thing. It's a way that we were meant to be. I mean, I kind of rejoice in the fact I'm created and finite, because... Being God, is, it's a heck of a responsibility. <laughs> so let's rejoice in what my colleague Norman Weisberg calls our creatureliness. Um, and it's, and it's, it's, it speaks of God's love towards us. He wants us to be not identical to him. That's the whole point. We are, of course, to be like God in that we are to reflect his love for God and for each other and for the created world. Yes, of course, in that sense. But not in the sense that we suddenly become infinite. That's a horrendous thought. And the other thing is uncontainability. What's uncontainable by God? Not just some abstract infinity, but the grace and love of God. God's love is utterly uncontainable. Think of Paul in 2 Corinthians, right at the end of, I think it's chapter 9. Uh, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible, indescribable, it can be translated for it, gift. He's not saying you can't say anything about it, but he's saying Whatever you say about the goodness and generosity of God, you will never be able to contain it. And that, that's transcendence, you see, in a very, very positive sense. So thank goodness we can't get our hands around God's goodness. We can't control it. And when we try through sinfulness, when we try to do that, no, God will resist that. But it's his goodness that's resisting. It. So I think really, the, the little book on transcendence, sorry, was an attempt to say, hey, come on, folks, the Christian faith actually has quite a lot to say about these things. Now, what about the arts? You started quite rightly saying there's a kind of intuition a lot of people have that the arts deliver a sense of transcendence. Indeed, they do. And I think the reason why they do is, uh, again, to simplify drastically, because they are constantly opening up levels of meaning and significance that can't be contained or that resist containment. Contrast I often use is between a picture of a shoe on the side of a shoebox in a shoe store compared to Van Gogh's painting of a peasant's shoes, farmer's shoes. Now if you again, I could show this. If, you know, if we weren't just audio. Um, the painting of Van Gogh's shoes. You look at it, and I've often asked audiences what do you see, and they say they see tiredness, overwork, toil earth and on it goes i mean we have maybe up to 30 words and the point is you can go on saying that you'll never encapsulate it that doesn't mean it means anything uh uh-uh, of course uh, it, it's uh, it's shoes <laughs> so there's it's not unlimited but there's an unlimited amount you can say about his portrayal of the shoes now take the shoebox the, the diagram on the shoebox inside the shoebox is is meant to help the person in the shop, get the right shoes. That's it. You don't find people staring one, <laughs> with awestruck wonder at the side of a shoebox in a shoe store thinking, my goodness, this is incredible. But with the vanguard painting, you often do because they'll see more and more and more. The point being that in the arts in particular, the arts are always doing that. They point you to something. but They say, there's more here and more here and actually more here and still more than you could ever imagine or say. And I think it's because of that we often associate, quite rightly, the arts with transcendence, with infinity, with, with going beyond bounds and barriers. And that's fantastic. My concern is simply, if we're coming that as Christians, let's give that a, a good grace-filled scriptural flavor. And we don't just talk about bare infinity. Uh, the, the infinity that art points us to ultimately Christians want to say, is the infinity of the uncontainably good God. Your latest book, Jeremy, which is due to come out
0: next year, is titled Abundantly More, The Theological Promise of the Arts in a Reductionist World. Without giving too much of the plot away, why do you (laughs) think that studying the arts might have particular relevance in our current cultural climate?
1: Yeah, well, spoiler alert and all that. This is a book about reductionism, first of all, and it's saying that the arts are incredibly powerful at resisting reductionism and that that's very important theologically and it's important in the culture in which we're living. So to fill that out a bit, reductionism, Donald Mackay, the great scientist, Christian scientist, used to speak about reductionism as nothing buttery. In other words, you say we are nothing but chemicals and, The world is nothing but uh, atoms or uh, subatomic particles colliding. A patient in the hospital is nothing but a case to be cured. The conflicts, political conflicts at the moment in Britain, are nothing but the function of economic forces, whatever it is. It's the attempt to reduce everything to one level of reality and one type of explanation that's amenable through one type of language. That flattening of the world is is what I understand by reductionism. And from what I've just said, it seems to me the arts, take the Van Gogh painting again, are constantly resisting that because they're constantly saying there are more levels to this than you think. There are more ways of looking at reality than you think. On a very simple level, if I clench my fist, I can describe that, of course, in terms of your neurological reactions and and brain cells and all the rest but I can give a physiological or neurophysiological explanation, or I can say, I did that because I wanted to. Both are true, but they're true on different levels. There's not only one explanation for things, there are many. And it's the, the wonderful gift of the arts, I think very often to help us to see those many, many levels, to expand our perception. Why does that matter theologically? Well, again, we've probably said enough to to answer that question but for for the christian there's a god at work in the world who is constantly bringing out more and more from this world often through us so scientific discovery would be an example we are discovering more and more there is always more to discover and no and we're constantly we're realizing that one kind of explanation is never good enough and that's the way it is it's the way that god has made things And that will push us towards saying, well, maybe the whole world cannot explain itself, but is open to an abundance of meaning, i.e. God, which can never be exhaustively specified or spoken about. Now, I'm not saying the arts, therefore, prove God. I'm saying if you really push their logic through what they're reminding us about the world and telling us about the world, you will be nudged strongly in that direction. And I found that with countless musicians, with painters, with... I had an extraordinary experience, when I quote this in the book, in Vancouver with a painter who wandered back after a lecture I'd been giving. And he was not a Christian, he was very explicit about that. And he said that after a, a lecture I'd given earlier, he was going back home and the mountains he had seen. You know, if you go to Vancouver, there are mountains and beaches and every, you know, glorious place. And he had a sudden sense. He looked at me and he said... I said, but this didn't have to be, did it? It didn't have to exist. And it didn't really have to be like this, did it? This was an artist speaking. See, It's the way he learned to look at the world as a kind of gift. And then he said to me, you know, does your Christian faith sort of say anything about that? Well, it's strange you should ask that. <laughs> so that opened up the most extraordinary conversation. Now, the point is he was, as an artist, not all artists think like that. But I found, even if they'll never use Christian language or whatever, very often they're pushing in that direction because they, they realize that the close reductionist ways of understanding the world, as nothing but a conglomeration of subatomic bottles or whatever. That is really, it's very hard to live as if that were the case. And it's very hard to make and enjoy art if that were the case. And it's a pretty bleak place to be as well. Incredibly bleak. It's incredibly bleak. I've got a good friend at uh, a uh, duke who's a, uh, he's actually a lecturer in English, but also philosopher, an extraordinary thing. He's a very good, a very good test of any theory that comes along like that. Is after you've looked at it all and all its data, whatever, just stand back and say, is this livable? Is this actually livable? So in writing the book, I've been exploring these absurdly intricate theories of reductionist theories about. You now it's really down to, oh, we're at the smallest particle. No, we got to go smaller still, and on it goes and on it goes. And you think, my goodness, you know, how do you get up in the morning? How do you live in the concrete world? How how do you how do you love somebody? How do you embrace somebody? If that's Honestly, what what you believe it's a very hard philosophy to live by. I mean, ultra naturalistic reductionism is a very hard philosophy. If you know, if, if my consciousness, is my mind, as my intentions, my beliefs, my passions, really are ultimately nothing but, and are fully explainable in terms of neurons firing or whatever the, the latest theory would be, that's oh, it's bleak stuff and very hard. You've spoken about other people's
0: journeys and encounters of faith and you've spoken about how some of this is effective for you in evangelistic contexts can we bring this conversation into land by saying how does how has your lifelong engagement with theology music and the arts shaped your own faith perhaps your own prayers if i can ask
1: sure as well as obviously
0: your own worship
1: i have found that working in the arts in worship, but also outside um, in the concert world in the, as a performer or whatever, has just gone hand in hand with the glorious work of exploring and uh, the privilege of teaching theology. And I just they are constantly in conversation with each other. So I don't feel I've ever had to force it. And as they go in conversation with each other, time and time i'm yes i am driven to prayer uh, mostly of thanksgiving that we are living in in a unified world where these different modes of encountering the world and living in the world can work together and and enrich each other i think that's about the best answer i can give it all comes down to gratitude in the end
0: that's a great place from which we can uh, make our own movement from this podcast it may be that our listeners are going to go directly to their Spotify playlist and listen to a piece of music which takes them from home to away and back to home again you've given us an invitation to go much deeper in music and theology Jeremy Begby, thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. It's been a delight
1: thank you so much for
0: You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmer Hall, Durham. Cranmer Hall is a theological college within St. John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmerhall.com.